from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Linda Kavalin Popoff on November 18, 2016. Linda is a psychotherapist specializing in suicide prevention and community healing and is the co-founder of The Virtues Project that in 1991 launched into a global grassroots initiative to inspire the practice of virtues in everyday life. She's also a best-selling author of The Family Virtues Guide, and A Pace of Grace. She's also published Graceful Endings and the novel called A Scent of Sage. For more than two decades, she has worked with indigenous peoples impacted by the trauma of residential school abuses. She's made many appearances on radio and television, including Oprah, and had her own television series in Canada. I started the interview by asking Linda where she grew up. And what was it like growing up there? I grew up in New York. I was born in New York City, and I was raised on Long Island for the most part. It was a very interesting experience, particularly as a member of the Baha'i faith, because there were very few Baha'is in that area. Where we were raised, you were either Jewish or Catholic. You were either black or white, (laughs) and everything was divided in our schools. And, of course, we, my brothers and I, refused to sit on the white side, and we had friends who were Jewish, and we had friends who were Catholic. And then we had our Baha'i experience in our Baha'i Sunday school where we were taught that about the oneness of humanity. So it was like living between two cultures to be raised in that part of the world. So your parents became Baha'is? Yes, my parents became Baha'is before I was born. But my brothers and I were both, were all raised in the Baha'i faith. Yeah. Do you know the story of how your parents became Baha'is? Oh, yes. (laughs) Well, when my parents met, they were both in the, the world of music. My mother was studying piano at Juilliard School of Music in New York. And my dad was singing at the Metropolitan Opera as a tenor. He had come from Colorado, and she was raised in the South, in Jackson, Mississippi. What what they realized is because of the Depression, they both had to leave what they loved. And my mother started working in a department store, and my dad uh, became a secretary at a realty firm, where he later became uh, the senior partner, along with uh, the founder. And when they were married, they were doing these these jobs just to survive. And my mother, in the department store where she was working, she was across from the makeup counter. This Baha'i woman was working at the makeup counter, and she made up a special powder for an African-American woman that came up to her and asked for powder. Well, my mother, with her thick Southern accent, went across afterwards and said now how did you make up some powder for that colored girl and the Baha'i kind of bristled at her and 
fussed at her and as if she were being prejudiced, but my mother was just curious. The next day, the Baha'i woman apologized to her and said, look, the reason I was sensitive about your question is that I'm a Baha'i and we believe that all people are equal and that we must overcome prejudice. And my mother said, well, I believe the same thing. <laughs> and so the woman invited her to what's called a Baha'i fireside so that she could learn about the faith. And so she started attending Baha'i meetings. I know she was going to a very interesting home that was the home of the Kinneys, who Baha'is actually know as two of the early, very devoted believers um, of the Baha'i faith in the U.S. <laughs> they had some interesting ways. Um, they had a monkey that would answer the door in little maid's outfits. So <laughs> this scared the heck out of my dad. And so he said to my mother, promise me you won't do anything about this Baha'i faith until you have learned about it for a year and I need to learn about it too. And so that's how they learned about it together. And of course, they both became Baha'is. And my father ended up as one of the first nine members of the Universal House of Justice, which is the international governing body of the Baha'is of the world. So he came quite a far away from that, that early skepticism. One of the basic tenets of the Baha'i faith is the independent investigation of truth. As Baha'is, we're not necessarily to just accept the uh, religion of our forefathers, but to really right. investigate truth for ourselves. Can you see, looking back, when you realized that the Baha'i faith was yours rather than you being a product of your parents' religion? Absolutely, Warren. Because we were being taught that in the Baha'i faith, all religions are part of one evolving faith, I tested that, and I tested my parents, because what I did was I went to shul with my Jewish friends, and I'd come home and I'd say, I think I'm going to be Jewish when I grow up, to see what my parents would say. And they'd say, well, that's an interesting choice. What are you learning about Judaism? They never would take the bait. And then I would go to Catholic um, catechism class with my Catholic friends, and I'd come home and say, I think I'm going to be Catholic when I grow up. They did the same thing. But what was really an awesome way to grow up as a Baha'i child was that, first of all, we had a marvelous uh, Sunday school that was actually interesting, where we learned about all different faiths, including the Baha'i teachings. Then every summer, my mother would spend the entire summer at a Baha'i summer school called Greenacre in Elliott, Maine. And I got to hear speakers from all over the world talking about the equality of women and men, and how science and religion must go hand in hand, and the oneness of humanity. I knew I was a Baha'i when I was five years old, but I didn't want to tell my parents that. So in those days, you could become, you could actually declare your faith as an independent investigator of truth when you were 15. And that's what I did. And I was really a very devout Baha'i until I went to university and I started questioning everything. Mm. I started questioning God and how did I know this wasn't just what I was raised with? You know, I minored in religion and majored in psychology. And I had this 
awesome religion professor. And what he did, he was teaching different faiths and he would always act as if he was a member of that faith. So we would walk into class and he'd be meditating on the top of his desk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> saying, well, he gave me a summer assignment that he said, your entire grade will be based on a paper that you write this summer proving, because I told him I was doubting everything about my faith and about God. And he said, I want you to prove progressive revelation, which is the Baha'i concept that all religions are part of an evolving faith. And he said, I want you to read all the texts, the holy texts in the original form, translated, of course. So I spent the summer at Greenacre in the library reading the Quran, reading the Bhagavad Gita, etc. And when I saw the reality of progressive revelation, it absolutely blew my mind. And that from that time on, I never questioned it. Because I found in the Bible all the teachings about the return of Christ, which the founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah, fulfilled. I remember reading the Quran and realizing that, that Muhammad was really honoring Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ, and talking about the sonship of Jesus Christ. And I thought, he's not changing that great teaching. He is confirming it. And then the other one was that when I read the Bhagavad Gita of Hinduism, and Krishna said, Lord Krishna said, Whenever there is unrighteousness and the need for righteousness, I arise from age to age. Then I read the Zoroastrian book, which most people had never even heard of. There was a passage explaining in an introduction that the three magi who discovered the Christ child, the three wise men, were Zoroastrians following a prophecy of Zoroaster where he said, At a certain time in the future, a new star will appear. Follow it, and you will find me cradled in the straw. So that was it for me. That was my confirmation (laughs) in university. Well, what a blessing that you just happened to have a professor that saw what you needed to do in order to be confirmed in your faith. Totally. He was a great gift in my life, really. Linda, you are co-founder of the Virtues Project, which is a very, very well-known project, but some of our listeners may not know uh, what it is. If you could tell us what inspired you to co-found this institution and explain to our listeners what the Virtues Project is and what it's done in the last 20 or so years in its existence. Sure, I'd love to, Warren. Well, every year... My husband, Dr. Dan Popoff, and I would would choose a service project for our family. And when our children were with us before they grew up, they would be part of that. So we would always have a family service project. And that's one of the things that some Baha'i families do. This occurred after my children had left home. And my brother, John Cavillan, was working as an Imagineer for Walt Disney Company. And he came to visit us in Canada where we were living. We took him to brunch at the Empress Hotel in Victoria for his last day. We were talking about the state of the world and 
the fact that John, Dan and I had not yet chosen a service project. And John said, you know, I'm getting a bit tired of all the glitz and, you know, the corporate life, and I want to do something to be a more direct service to humanity. He said, I wish that we could do something together. And we said, let's do something together. I was a psychotherapist specializing in suicide prevention amongst teens. And Dan is a clinical pediatric psychologist. And here's John, you know, the designer and the show producer. We were talking about the fact that there was a very still a very high suicide rate amongst teens. And also that that murder is one of the leading causes of death of youth aged 12 to 24. So we thought, what do they need? And someone ought to do something about that. And we said, why don't we do something? And so that's what started the Virtues Project. Wanting to help young people, children, to know that their life has a purpose and a meaning and that they are precious and they are valuable and they need to make their contribution. And how do you raise kids with authentic self-esteem? John left Disney within about three weeks. <laughs> they were not happy about it. But anyway, he came up to stay with us for the summer. And we were living in this little cottage um, on the water in British Columbia, near Victoria. We called it our summer of discernment. And basically, we prayed for guidance. What can we do to help with this problem? And we thought, well, where would you look for the meaning of life? And we all felt that we would look for the meaning of life in the Bible, in the Baha'i writings, in the Quran, in the sacred texts of the world's religions. What Dan also brought to our little threesome was that he had been a scholar in the world's sacred texts for many, many years. We thought, well, let's look in the sacred texts and see what do they say is the meaning of life. And what we discovered was that the virtues are like this silver thread of unity running through all faiths and all beliefs, including the oral traditions of First Nations. The stories are all about courage, honor, justice, love, service. Why are we here? We're here to cultivate the virtues of our life. And in the Baha'i writings say, we are here to cultivate, to grow the virtues of the kingdom, the spiritual kingdom. So, all religions say the same thing. So we thought, that's it. So let's call it the Virtues Project. Mm. So that's how that came about. What was the first project that you undertook under the auspices of the Virtues Project? We started by serving the Baha'i community, uh, making up uh, packets for worship meetings for Baha'i kids. It was a whole lot of different activities. But the thing that Baha'is were most interested in was the piece on the virtue of the weak. That was the precursor. And then we, we realized that the world needed this. And so we, we set our sights on a, a wider service. The question we asked was, well, how would you reach the children? How could you reach the children? You reach them through their parents. And so I had never been an author in my life. And here I was in my 40s. And we decided that we needed to write a book. And we wrote the Family Virtues Guide, which 
originally was called the Virtues Guide. That was our first project, Warren, and we self-published that. And if you want to call it publishing, we were photocopying it and putting it in binders. But I want to tell you, within two months of of producing that in our garage, we bought a house together and it had this this separate building where we worked. John and I called it the office and Dan called it the garage. (laughs) (laughs) Within two months, it was in over 20 countries. The word just spread like wildfire. So the Baha'i community heard about it all over the world. The Mormon community, Latter-day Saints heard about it. They used it for their family nights. So tons of books went out to them. And before we knew it, we had sold 60,000 books. And this is a very high amount of books for something that has no marketing, you know. So, right. so it was just word of mouth. I mean, it was uh, all word uh, of mouth. We never did any marketing whatsoever. Yeah, it was amazing. It, it just went like wildfire around the planet. And one man um, who was a Baha'i, Ed Mutard, who was a member of the National Assembly of the Baha'is of Canada said, I think other Baha'i assemblies should have this. So he started sending copies out. Then he traveled to Australia. And that's what started this huge spread of the project in the South Pacific. It's all over Australia, New Zealand, Cook Islands, Vanuatu, Solomon Islands, you know, all over the place. But it's spread to more than 110 countries now. The thing that was so interesting was we didn't know how to start. One day I was walking across the deck from the house to the garage and John was already in there early in the morning because he was setting up the book. You know, he was laying out the virtues guide. This was like the day it was going to get finished. He was so excited. He's madly typing away. And as I'm walking across the deck, I get this huge impression very intense that he has to turn off the computer and save what he's doing and I don't know I didn't know what was going to happen but I walked in and I said John turn off the computer right now he said Linda I'm almost finished what do you mean I said are you saving he said well not really I said save it right now please so I'm the older sister so he obeyed me you know (laughs) so He was rolling his eyes, but he saved it. He turned the computer off, and at that moment, there was this huge crack of thunder, and all the electricity went off. And he would have lost a lot of the book. So it was a huge storm that swept around our house. We had no power, no heat, except in the garage, we had a wood-burning stove. And for three days, this storm was howling around our house. This was in January, I think it was 1990, and John and I got up the next morning. Dan was still wrapped up in a sleeping bag in the bedroom, and we went into the office, which was dark, and we lit the fire in the fireplace in the wood-burning stove, and I said to him, John, what are we going to do with the book now that it's finished? He said, I have no idea. We just kept doing one step at a time, Warren, you know. Dan did the research, I did the writing, and John did the layout. I said, you know what, we better pray and meditate. And so in the Baha'i writings and in the Bible and, you know, 
my favorite Bible passage, one of them is, call to me and I will answer you and show you great and hidden things that you do not know. The Baha'i writings say that prayer is conversation with God. So the listening part is just as important as the speaking part. So we said some prayers and then I said, let's meditate. And John said, you know, I'm not very good at that, Lynn. <laughs> I said, well, just let's just get quiet and let's just see what God has to tell us. So we got very quiet and we just could hear the crackling of the fire. And then when, after a few minutes, I said, I mean, I got a very clear answer. And I said, John, did anything come into your mind? And he said, yeah, something about native people. And I said, oh, my goodness, because what I heard was First Nations first. So that just blew my mind. I wrote that up on the flip chart. And then this other thing came to me, which I had no idea what it meant, Integrated Community Development Project. I wrote that up there. The next day, the electricity came on, the lights came on, and the phone rang. And I'm saying to John, how are we going to get this to Native people? The last thing they need is more white people telling them how to live, much less how they should parent their children, which is what the Family Virtues Guide was. It was a parenting book. I answer the phone, and this woman says, are you the people doing the virtues? <laughs> yes. <laughs> she said, my name is Frances Dick. I'm the development officer for this First Nation in Kinkum Inlet, the Tswatanuk people, and we would like you to bring the virtues to our people. I said, really? <laughs> <laughs> and so three weeks later, Dan and I are flying up in this little tiny plane to this tiny little village. And this is the village that was mentioned in the book, I Heard the Owl Call My Name which is a, a, a very beautiful book about this little Canadian village. Well, they were the first place to embrace the Virtues Project, wow. and that was our first workshop. So, Warren, honestly, in all honesty, we have been guided from one step to the next to the next. You've produced a lot of material since then for educators and for family since, right. since that first book, right? Yes, well, the thing is that um, we keep seeing that the need for virtues education really is very broad. The first book was the Family Virtues Guide, and the second book was Sacred Moments, Daily Meditations on the Virtues. And the reason I put that book together is because the adults that were taking these courses that we were giving on, on parenting with virtues, you know, raising kind kids, or going from violence to virtues. They were longing for some kind of spiritual support for themselves. And so I put together this daily meditation book on the virtues. And so that's still out there circulating. Then, because we started spreading into schools, I wrote the, the Virtues Project Educator's Guide. Then I became deathly ill, actually, with post-polio syndrome and had to stop traveling the world for a little while. Out of that experience of recovery, which was just an awesome and quite miraculous recovery based on prayer and meditation, 
I've decided to share what I was given in meditation with others through a pace of grace, the virtues of a sustainable life. And then my darling brother John died seven years ago of brain cancer. And after that, I wrote Graceful Endings, Navigating the Journey of Loss and Grief. And all of these books have had the virtues and the five strategies of the Virtues Project, which are like the signature contribution of the Virtues Project to business, to any organization, to families, to individuals, to schools that are being used in many faith communities. It's They're very useful across the board for bringing virtues to life. And so every one of the books has the five strategies in it. And my most recent book just came out a couple of months ago, and it's a novel called Ascent of Sage. And it's based on the 20 years plus that I've worked with First Nations people in healing from residential school abuses in Canada, particularly. It's got a historical backdrop of that, but it's also a romance and a crime drama. And it has the five strategies woven through it and the virtues, of course. And we we have virtues cards that are for about 17 different religions. And we have multi-faith cards that you can choose a card each day. Um, We have digital copies of everything. So if people go to virtuesproject.com, they can see where the shop is. And there's all kinds of products that are based on the virtues that they can use to just enhance their spiritual practice, whatever their beliefs happen to be. Yeah, I had a friend use the materials on that website for their children's classes, and they found it very, very effective. You had mentioned graceful endings, and you sort of, yes. you, you, I guess you explained that the impetus of that book was the, the passing of your brother. Yes. Um, would you happen to have an excerpt prepared that you could read I, from it? I do, actually. I have that one, so... If you'd like, I'd be happy to read a little bit of it. That would be great. Thank you. Okay, wonderful. The journey of grief. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Leonard Cohen. So perfect because he died this week. That was lyrics from from his beautiful um, song, Anthem. Grief begins at the moment a sudden death occurs or a life-changing diagnosis is received, and it endures long after the death of a loved one. It is a shape-shifter that moves into our lives taking unexpected forms and coming in unpredictable patterns. It has many faces. We can accept its presence or we can resist, but there are consequences to both. It may at times feel like a hideous nightmare we wish only to escape, but I have found that the best way through it is to befriend it. Viewing grief and loss as a journey of initiation, we are no longer victims, but navigators. We can then move beyond mere survival to receive its surprising gifts. When tended with love and compassion, grief is a portal leading to a deeper experience of grace. The sense that everything comes to us from a source of love, to bring us joy or to make us grow. And I could read a little bit. That's sort of the 
little summary before the chapter. So shall I read a little more? Yeah, sure. The journey begins. We must embrace pain and burn it as fuel for our journey. Kenji Miyazawa, poet and author. I thought I was an expert on grief until the day we learned that my brother John had incurable brain cancer. Not until I was losing one of my closest loves did I have an inkling of its dimensions. Having worked as a hospice spiritual care director and a psychotherapist for decades, I companion many dying individuals and their family members. But witnessing grief and being the one in grief are a world apart. Nothing prepared me for the unexpected loss of my younger brother. So radiant, so healthy, my first friend. There's a saying that life is what happens when we're making other plans. When someone we love is diagnosed with a terminal illness, life suddenly contracts into a small space with that person at the center. We circle the wagons, we weave a cocoon, we become fiercely protective. Everything else seems to fall away. We are enveloped in single-pointed concentration on their well-being. Time is rapidly absorbed in medical appointments, changes to our schedule, changes to our lives. And then there is the grief. It comes unbidden, often so suddenly that it takes our breath away. Getting the news. I sat with John as the radiation oncologist explained to him the confirmed diagnosis of glioblastoma multiform brain cancer with the dire prognosis that he would live only a few months, even with radiation and chemotherapy. Without it, the time he had left would be even shorter. As we left the cancer clinic, John was quiet. He looked stunned. What do you need now, I asked, holding my own tears in check. Breakfast, he bellowed. And we both laughed. He had been advised by friends to go on a restrictive anti-cancer alkaline diet, giving up coffee, sugar, and other things he loved ever since our family doctor had said it looked like cancer. Now that the diagnosis was confirmed, his only desire was for comfort. As he chowed down on bacon, eggs, and pancakes, slurping coffee with great gusto, I said, the condemned man ate a hearty breakfast. His laughter erupted loudly, and he sprayed coffee all over his fried potatoes. Humor can be a healing balm in this surreal experience of death and loss. The way grief manifests itself is unique to each of us. The way it shifts and changes differs from person to person. It is mercilessly unpredictable in its force and form. John spent the days following his diagnosis in a state of shock and seemed quietly puzzled, a common first response both for those who learn they are dying and those who love them. My experience was vastly different. A tsunami of sorrow blindsided and engulfed me. I was drowning. The devastating possibility that John's life would be shortened rose up and swallowed me for hours at a time. It intensified without warning, leaving me utterly spent, bereft. It felt as if my core had imploded and was suddenly missing, not questioning God's existence or presence, but my own. It put me in mind of the movie, Death Becomes Her, where Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn, as living ghosts, shoot huge holes in each other's torsos. 
How soon after John's passing did you write the book? That is a very good question. I think it took me about three years. It was very healing for me to be writing it. So I started writing it on Aitutaki in Cook Islands, where Dan and I went for a holiday after everything was over. And so I started it there, and I think it took me a couple of years. It's very hard for me to remember those years, because it took me about two years to get over the worst of the grief, which was a huge shock to me, because I'm a very faithful Baha'i. I know that I know that John immediately went into the world of light and was happy, but I wasn't happy. Because <laughs> right, sure. he was so much to me. He was every he was my friend. He was my roommate. He was my he was my coworker. And he was just very, very dear to me from the time he was born. So it was just a fascinating journey for me. And I've been told by many people that this book, which uh, hospices are are using, have actually helped them get through the journey. So I'm really pleased about that. As it probably helped you. Oh, it did. (laughs) Yeah. The last book that you've written, which you mentioned before, is Ascent of Sage. Tell me what inspired you to write a novel, and maybe you could read an excerpt from it. Yeah, I'd love to. For 20 years, I have worked in healing with First Nations, people all over Canada who have suffered the results of the residential school experience, because in the 1930s, uh, the Canadian government and the American government, through the churches, decided to separate Indian children from their parents and from their villages to try to really assimilate them into society, unquote. White culture. And white culture. They really tried to kill the Indian within them. I actually worked with people that had been traumatized through that, and also their children and their grandchildren. And the Virtues Project was the the framework for the healing work that we did, and it was so powerful that I wanted that message to get out. And also the whole notion of the multi-generational impact of that trauma and that cultural genocide, really, is now at the forefront in Canada. And there's all kinds of reparation and reconciliation going on. And so I wanted to write a book about that. A lot of the work was done in the Yukon, although we traveled right across Canada and in some parts of the U.S. as well, um, to do this healing work. Dan and I drove back up to the Yukon because I wanted to meet with some of the people whose stories I wanted to share to get their permission. I, Of course, I didn't use their, their names, but I really felt honor-bound to ask their permission about their stories. And so I met with those that I could, and they all said, please, tell our story. Then I met with with the chief who had been a major part of the work that we did because she got the um, Aboriginal Healing Foundation involved and she brought in elders and healers from all over the north from you know the very 
top of the Arctic Circle to meet with me in a camp in 2011. It actually happened on 9-11, which was very interesting. Mm. I guess that was 2001, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So I was at this remote camp and heard even more stories. But I met with this chief, and she was angry with me for thinking that I would write a book and somehow benefit from the pain of others. And I said, you know me. You know that is not my motive. And she said, but I think one of us should tell the story. And I said, so you really don't feel that I should write a historical book exposing this whole thing? No. I said, do you want me to mentor you to write it? She said, yes. (laughs) Well, that hasn't happened yet, Warren. But I said, okay, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'll write a novel, and it'll be featured in there, but it won't be the historical more documentary book that I was planning to write. And she seemed to accept that. So at first I was just horrified that I couldn't write this book. And then I realized that she had freed me to really use my creativity. And I've always wanted to write a novel, but I didn't know if I could. And sure enough, I totally loved the process. So the stories are sprinkled in there, but it's also a romance It incorporates a lot of the healing tools that I used. And I brought it into a place that's a retreat, you know, a healing retreat in a very beautiful place, which I'm not going to say where it was because I don't want to be a spoiler. But anyway, (laughs) um, the character, the main character, is a woman, a young woman in her 20s named Kate McKenzie. Her mother was Tal Tan from uh, Western Canada, And her dad was a Scotsman. And this often would happen. There were intermarriages all over Canada. And his name is Hiram Kenzie. Kate becomes a journalist. I'm thinking maybe I just should read part of the first chapter. Sure. I I would like to read the dedication, Warren, if I could. Please. This novel is dedicated to First Nations residential school survivors of Canada who have taught me much about soul retrieval after generations of trauma, the deep need to honor culture and tradition. The indigenous worldview of the oneness, harmony, and interconnectedness of all living things, people, plants, water, mountains, animals, sky, and earth, is reflected in the First Nations version of Amen, All My Relations. Okay, so I'll read to you the first chapter. Kate leaned against the granite counter, gazing out the kitchen window as a rose-tinted dawn slowly illuminated the tiny back garden. White, yellow, and wine-colored chrysanthemums, scarlet cyclamens, and blue hydrangeas, still buxom in early September, sparkled with dew. She sipped from a steaming cup mug of rich, dark Sumatra coffee, savoring the aroma and the heat. Today's broadcast in less than two hours would be a turning point in Kate's career. She had endured long, bone-chilling months of rain and snow, living on the streets and hidden recesses of underground Toronto, her life in constant jeopardy as an undercover investigative journalist for CBC. Convincing Stanley Levinson, her top boss at the network, 
to even allow her near this story was a feat in itself, much less to take the lead. And now for the first time, she would appear live on the Fifth Estate, an award-winning Canadian news magazine program known for its fearless investigations. The name of the show played on the fact that the media was often referred to as the Fourth Estate. The name highlighted a determination to go beyond everyday news into journalism with meaning and social impact. It was this very aspect of the corporate mission that allowed Kate to break the gender and age barriers by the youthful age of 26. As a First Nations woman, she fit the profile of cutting-edge journalistic practice in which diversity was the new mantra. To reach this spectacular move in her career, Kate had to overcome another obstacle, the intense degree of danger to which she would be exposed. She had to sign a pile of legal documents waiving liability on the part of Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in order to pursue the elusive Anthony Sabatano, one of Toronto's most notorious mafioso. Today would be her crowning moment. She was about to debut on air as a journalist, presenting irrefutable evidence against Sabatano, who would be brought up on charges of dealing in drugs and prostitution. The heart of the expose was the trafficking of children. Kate had videos of young victims, their faces blanked out, tearfully recounting horrific stories, as well as countless audio clips and incriminating documents gathered during the undercover operation. I think I'm going to skip ahead. Her most convincing argument was that she could use the racist assumptions about urban natives to her advantage, posing as an addict. She lost weight, letting her luxuriant hair go unbrushed and stringy, and had needle marks hygienically inserted by a police surgeon. She didn't bathe for a week before she disappeared underground. The worst part of the ordeal for Kate was the cold. She always hated cold. As she sipped her morning coffee, scenes of the 14-month ordeal rose in her mind, hiding in squats in crumbling, unheated, boarded-up buildings, meeting homeless kids as young as nine, recruited by Sabatana's organization to sell drugs, then hooking them on meth and cocaine, leading them into prostitution to support their addiction. While she had to turn a blind eye to what was going on for the bigger goal she was struggling for, she connected deeply with a couple of the kids. It broke her heart not to rescue them and literally take them home with her. She kept focusing on letting go of what was important in order to do what was most important. She had given more than a year of her life to the project, and it took every ounce of her self-discipline to keep going. That's an incredible story. I'm going to have to get the novel now and read it. <laughs> <laughs> well, if anyone who would like to get A Scent of Sage or any of my other books, actually, can go to lindacavalinpopoff.com. And it's my name is spelled L-I-N-D-A-K-A-V-E-L-I-N-P-O-P-O-V. And it's just www.lindacavlinpopoff.com. And you can find my author Facebook on there. You can read my blog. And you can get any of these, these books. And for more information on the Virtues Project, it's 
probably best to go to virtuesproject.com. Very good. Yeah, and uh, I think you also had gracefulendings.net as well, right? Yes, I do. Gracefulendings.net, for sure. So that's devoted to the uh, the That's devoted to the book on grief and navigating the journey of grief, yes. So I'll post those links on my website where I post the the interviews so that people... Oh, that would be wonderful. Thank you. So what's next for Linda Cavill and Popoff? Well, Warren, Dan and I have actually moved to Aitutaki, Cook Islands, Mm. and we are what's called Baha'i Pioneers there. We are just there to be of service to the people, and we absolutely love it. We've kind of been adopted by them, and they call us Mama Linda and Papa Dan, and we have even adopted a granddaughter who's five years old. (laughs) What I have found there is that I get to write a column every single week for the Cook Island News called Virtues in Paradise. That is feeling really wonderful. How appropriate a name. (laughs) People that have read Ascent of Sage are, to be honest, the reviews on Amazon are just awesome. And everybody is saying they want to see the movie come out. And they also want the next book. So I'm really, really strongly considering writing the sequel to Ascent of Sage and probably a trilogy. So that's what's next for me. (laughs) Sounds great. So, Linda, thank you so much for taking the time to tell your story and to share your work with us. It's it's really, really fascinating work. And thank you. Thank you, Warren. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Linda Cavill and Popoff, psychotherapist, co-founder of The Virtues Project, and author of several books, including the novel Ascent of Sage. You can find her work at lindacavillandpopoff.com. You can find this interview and other interviews at abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
listen Can you hear the sound Of hearts beating All the world around Down in the valley Out on the plain Everywhere around the world The heartbeat sounds the same Black or white Red or tan It's the heart of the family of man Whoa, it's beating away Whoa, it's beating away Whoa, it's beating away Listen Can you hear the sound Laughter All the world around High in the mountains Down by the sea Everywhere around the world Laughter sounds the same to me Black or white Red or tan It's the sound of the me 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org. 